Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, Apple is doing away with the iPod, ending production of the Touch, the last of the devices still being made 21 years after they were introduced. We look at why and at the huge impact they've had on the company. We listen in on a golden era of Canadian music with the author of Hearts on Fire, six years that changed Canadian music, 2000 to 2005, and find out why he thinks it was such a pivotal time in Canadian music. We head to Shanghai to find out what it's been like to live under COVID lockdown for nearly two months and the impact of China's zero COVID policy on day-to-day life there. But first, one topic continues to make waves today following the Conservative leadership debate in Edmonton on Wednesday. Pierre Polyev saying if elected as Prime Minister, he would fire the Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem and replace him. We talked to a Tory strategist about the comment, the strategy, the implications, and the leadership race in general. We're going to start tonight with one topic that was really making waves today following the Conservative Party leadership debate in Edmonton last night, reverberating uh, all over the place today. Pierre Polyev saying if elected as Prime Minister, he would replace the Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem. Here's how he put it. The Bank of Canada Governor has allowed himself to become the ATM machine of this government. And so I would replace him with a new governor who would reinstate our low inflation mandate, protect the purchasing power of our dollar, and honor the working people who earn those dollars. That's what he had to say. I always hate when people say ATM machine. ATM means, you know, anyway. (laughs) Um, The response was pretty swift from other competitors on stage. Here's Jean Charest. Saying that the Bank of Canada is financially illiterate is irresponsible. It creates doubt. If you're an investor looking at coming to Canada and you hear that kind of a statement coming from a member of the House of Commons, you'd think you're in a third world country. We cannot afford to have any leader who goes out there and deliberately undermines the confidence in institutions. Conservatives do not do that. Jean Charest last night in Edmonton. Today, the Bank of Canada didn't have much to say other than they don't comment on political issues and to point out uh, that Governor Macklem has a seven-year period that runs until June 2027. The Prime Minister also weighed in today, saying the independence of the bank is important for economic stability and our international reputation. The fact that um, one of the leading candidates for the Conservative Party of Canada, the leader of the opposition, seems to profoundly either misunderstand that or not care about the facts at all is uh, somewhat disappointing in an era where we need more responsible leadership, not less. Justin Trudeau there. Well, no backing down today uh, from Pierre Poliev, uh, to say the least. Joining me now uh, to, to discuss all of this from Ottawa is Conservative strategist Tim Powers, chair of Summa Strategies. Tim, thanks so much. When Ben O'Hara Burns says, will you come on his show and it's 10 o'clock in the East and 7 in the West, you say, yes, sir. How are you, my friend? Good to talk to uh, you. Good to talk to you. I thought you might say, forget it. I'm watching the hockey game. but <laughs> <laughs> Well, I do have that on at the moment while we're speaking. So, uh, good enough. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll update you accordingly during the conversation. Perfect. Well, if being talked about the next day is the key to winning a debate, uh, Polyev certainly succeeded there, didn't he? He did, and hey, look, that's part and parcel of his strategy. The whole idea, I look, I'm not supporting any candidate in any of this, but I, I agree I agree with Mr. Charest and, and the Prime Minister that it's a wacky notion, 
But that's what Pierre Polyev wants me to say, you to say, and everybody else, because right. part of being talked about, Ben, is having the audience that you're trying to cultivate further uh, support you and endorse you and get more of their friends to do that. Um, Polyev, as you know, is running what could be simplified as an anti-establishment campaign. So when the prime minister says it's a bad idea, when uh, Jean Charest says it's a bad idea, he says, see, look, these people, they don't want to make change. I'll make change for you, regardless of the difficulties that would be involved in, uh, in trying to fire the Bank of Canada, because an act of parliament is required to do that. What's surprising about the strategy, perhaps, is that it seems... Um there are so many other things he could be talking about right now. And I get the sense that a lot of his messaging is actually landing quite nicely. It just feels like this one, it could be, it could come back to haunt him. Most certainly it could, you know, does this turn into a, um, uh, and you covered it uh, many years ago, a, a moment from a leadership debate that haunts a candidate in a prime ministerial campaign. You'll remember the famous uh, Stefan Dion clip against uh, Michael Ignati from an old liberal debate, you know, uh, it's very difficult to make priorities, Mr. Dion said, and, and yes. that became the basis of the, what, 2008 advertising uh, campaign that the uh, the Conservatives ran with great success when Mr. Dion was the leader of the, uh, of the Liberal Party. There are a lot of very um, experienced and talented people behind Pierre Polyev's campaign, yep. from John Baird and so on. Um, What's the strat? I mean, you've pointed out what the strategy is, but it, it just feel it feels like an odd talking about cryptocurrencies, uh, the, the the attacks on the Bank of Canada governor, considering inflation is is a problem everywhere. There's attacks on the Fed too, but maybe not so personal. Uh, it just seems like an odd strategy uh, when there is so much you could be criticizing right now. Uh, indeed, but I, I I think it's about if you. Um, look back at the last conservative leadership and uh, Aaron O'Toole won uh, and you'll remember the controversy about O'Toole's brand. Was he really uh, a hardcore blue Tory or was he more of a progressive conservative? And he won being a hardcore blue conservative, but as his critics would argue, morphed into a progressive conservative. Mr. Polyev is trying to use this opportunity, I think, to say to those who are supporting him that, you know, brand Polyev is brand Polyev, no matter how uncomfortable it may be for people who oppose him. The challenge, of course, with that, Ben, is brand Polyev in and of itself may be enough to win the conservative leadership race, though we won't know that until September 10th. But it's what happens afterwards. I think, again, to put a point on it, they want to have a brand purity with their candidate and are thinking they will have enough time after a leadership race to clean up inconsistencies or outright glaring errors that may come back to haunt them when when the general election comes into play. I have been impressed by just how disciplined and consistent the messaging has been so far in his campaign, though, right from the get-go. Uh, he stuck to one story. He uses the same words over and over again. Um, it has, from a, camp, from a strat strategic point of view, I thought, been quite effective. Uh, he, he has been consistent, as you say, uh, and he, uh, he, he wasn't backpedaling today. When David Dodge, on the weekend, the former governor of the Bank of Canada, basically, well, he called BS on everything uh, Polyev is arguing about the root of inflation, the bank's role in it, and cryptocurrency. 
what did what did he do uh, but double down again he being poly and you know again from your time here in ottawa and uh and working around the world david dodge is a figure that's very well regarded has a ton yeah. of credibility in other circumstances people may have backed away from that and again i think this builds among polyev supporters and would-be supporters credibility for him and commitment to him that he knows he needs uh, to become the leader of the Conservative Party. What happens afterwards, again, as I say, uh, has has been problematic for uh, leaders that he's uh, leaders that uh, are now disposed, and he's hoping to succeed. I imagine this NDP liberal um, arrangement, though, because it will give the new leader of the Conservative Party a few years to right whatever wrongs may have been committed uh, during the leadership campaign. It does give them a little more time to to get their feet wet and to change their tune if need be. Maybe. Uh, that's uh, assuming it lasts until 2025. I, look, sure. I... Uh, I'm not sure it will last that length, but it's probably good for another year, year and a half until there's a change of liberal leadership. I don't think Prime Minister Trudeau stays until the end of the term. As you know, he's never going to say that he's going until the moment he announces that he's going. But um, though the the deal is now in place and he says he's staying, I think there's still a large body of audience here that thinks he's probably going to announce his retirement from politics within the next year or so after he's got a couple of legacy pieces done, and then that changes the mechanics of it. But at a minimum, yes, Pierre Polyev, if he wins, or Jean Jaurès or Patrick Brown, whomever, Les and Lewis have, have most certainly a year uh, or longer to do cleanup work and brand building, whatever else they need to do to get ready for a general election. I'm speaking with Tim Powers, the chair of Summa Strategies. A walk in the snow for another Trudeau. That would be an interesting, uh, obviously an interesting development. When we come back, uh, a little bit more about how the other members, how the other candidates did on stage last night and where the uh, conservative leadership race goes from here. That's next. Magic internet money fluctuates vastly, 30% or more in one day. And the last thing we should be doing is encouraging our parents and grandparents, along with vulnerable families, to gamble their savings, their retirements, in something this risky that's been learned watching late-night YouTube videos. I'm speaking with Tim Powers, chair of Summa Strategies, about uh, the conservative leadership race. Uh, Back in March, I watched an interview you did with my colleague Eric Sorensen, and you said this would not be a pillow fight. It would indeed be a barroom brawl. And uh, while last night they kind of kept the bar very tidy, um, it certainly turned out that way, hasn't it, so far? Well, and you only need to look back last week, uh, right, Ben, uh, the uh, Manning, formerly the Manning Center, Canada Strong Free Network. I mean, all you needed was uh, Vince McMahon in there and Hulk Hogan, and there would have been chairs uh, being thrown around. But you saw flashes. Your clip was a great example of some of the flashes of nastiness um, that exist there. There's certainly no love lost among Mr. Sheree, uh and Mr. Polyev, nor among Mr. Brown and Mr. Polyev, as you know, Brown and Polyev were in caucus here together. Even then, they weren't uh, too fond of, of each other. And I, I think what was fascinating about that clip that you played um, is Polyev is somewhat, the, the, the attack would suggest um uh, that Polyev is somewhat concerned with Patrick Brown. He responded afterwards. You played Brown's clip. Um, Brown is the one that, that's hardest to get a read on at the moment. His campaign has almost been subterranean. He hasn't 
had as visible a presence as the other candidates. Um, he has been out signing up members by all reports, and that's how he previously won the Ontario uh, PC leadership uh, before he had to resign over a, a series of very contentious allegations about his behavior. So, um, yeah, <laughs> and uh, the, those allegations and that uh, alleged behavior uh, all brought up before by Pierre Polyev. So uh, they're not afraid to bring out the brass knuckles here. <laughs> um, Patrick Brown, again, we had he wasn't at the Manning debate, so he wasn't involved in the uh, in the brawl. Uh, but, you know, I noticed that Polyev went after him today on, on social media, and it was the first time I'd seen the, it that blatant um what's his what's he running for here i guess he's running as the as the person who can win votes in those areas the 905s uh the the, Mont- the outskirts of montreal the lower mainland that other conservative leaders have lost yeah he's the guy who can get the urban votes the the, the can get votes in the center of cities he's styled himself as he is the mayor of Brampton, Brampton, large city in Ontario, large city in Canada. Uh, he kept making that point uh, last night. He's also the one who says, look, I can bring new people to the Conservative Party. And that was part of what he did in his brief tenure as leader of the Ontario Party. I'm the guy that uh, can win more seats in Ontario than, than anybody has since Stephen Harper. And he, he his uh, critique of, of Polyev is, look, he's angry, he's divisive, he was part and parcel of the worst practices that saw the Harper government uh, fail. And Polyev counters, well, you, Patrick, were also part of that. So that's part of the nasty between them and part of the, the appeals they're both trying to uh, drive. The scramble now, I guess, is to June the 3rd, the deadline to sign up members. Mm-hmm. Do we have any concept of how that's going and who's doing well? Um, and it, I guess that's why uh, Brown wasn't there last week. He said he was out signing up members. Well, and, and he was in Atlantic Canada, my part of the world, and he claims yes. uh, that he signed up 3,000, which would be something given he's uh, hardly known in, in that region. So who knows? We, we don't know what's true, Ben. This is the biggest phony war that <laughs> that I've seen in leadership politics in a very long time, and we won't really get a sense of it probably until mid-June because at some point the Conservative Party will announce how many um, members are eligible for the leadership rate to vote in the leadership race. And we'll be able to tell from previous numbers of who, uh, existing party members, what, what the rate of success was. And then the candidates will begin to trumpet who they brought in and, and, and how all of that uh, has gone, but there's no real numbers out there. The only thing that I've heard the party utter publicly, and it has been published is they, they say they're preparing for a leadership contest, a vote tabulating contest that could involve as many as 500,000 people. So I don't know if that's spin or, um, or close to any sort of reality. Yeah, that'd be double, I guess. I think O'Toole's was it closer was, it to was something right? last time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I only have about 90 seconds left. I was just out of curiosity, your, your, your opinion so far of the race, has it been something worth watching? Are you seeing any ideas that you like? Has it been an edifying experience? Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'd use edifying. Uh, it, it's been a predictable experience. I, I think, you know, there are factions within the party that are, are rearing their heads. I don't know what my, my big concern is what the party will look like after all of this, particularly given the animus among the top three candidates. And, 
you have to hold the party together first or build it in a different direction if you want to win. I'd, I'd like to see more debate. I'd like to see more thought. I'd like to see some more serious leadership on display as opposed to the gimmicks of modern politics. But it is modern politics, and these gimmicks have worked in other places, and the focus, absolute focus on membership sales uh seems to be the key and you feed that uh, with uh, you know enhanced rhetoric and and other big tall tales that get people on board so you can say that uh, that enthusiasm is not what I have right now just uh, just cautious it's not delusion either but I don't know what I have right now I'm just watching <laughs> I'll let you get back to watching the overtime in the uh, in the Leafs. Oh, uh, there you the go. Leafs You're game as watching well. it too. I couldn't captivate you either. Well, there you go. <laughs> Tim Powers, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Take care. I remember getting my first iPod. I think it took me a few minutes to figure out how to how to forward it, how to use the dial, how to spin, which was embarrassing. Um, but very fond memories of the iPod from the first ones to all the different ones they put out over the years. Uh, but the end of an era this week, Apple announcing that it is in fact pulling the plug on the last model of the iPod. Yes. If you didn't know there was still one you could buy, I used to look at them occasionally and then it couldn't justify, uh, paying that when you have a phone already, but the iPod touch. Um, so after 21 years, it's hard to imagine that, that iPod is in fact a 20th, 21st century device and that it's already come to an end but uh, that is it indeed here are some of the commercials here's how the ipad was marketed to us back in the early days I can picture the iPod. I can see that ad when I hear that song. Well, with more on Apple's decision on just how, how important the iPod has been to the company, joining me now is technology analyst and journalist Carmi Levy. Uh, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Great to be here, Ben. You know, as you're describing your experience, I'm thinking, how many of these do I have gathering dust in my desk drawer? And I know I'm not alone. I know many of us have been kind of digging through the archives, looking for their old iPods uh, and uh, really feeling a lot of nostalgia for this thing. We tend not to feel that for technology, but I think the iPod is a little bit different. It really was an iconic brand. Kind of sad to see it go. I feel a little bit of a clamp. I do. Same here, because, you know, I think, when they came out, they were so they were so different from anything you'd had before. The idea you could hold thousands and thousands of songs on this relatively, you know, sort of credit card size device. Uh, one thing that always reminds me how many I've had is just how many chargers are lying around the house that, or you know, like just <laughs> wires full and full of those old iPhone chargers. You know, the the wider ones or the old <laughs> iPod chargers. Um, I guess this isn't a. I mean, clearly not a surprise. I as I was mentioning, I used to see the iPod Touch sort of sitting lonely at uh, at the electronics store. And I, I haven't seen anybody with an iPod, at least not a new one, in quite a while. I guess this was just the end of the line. It certainly was. And, you know, it served its purpose. And if you think back to when it was introduced in the, in the foggy days, it was October 2001. So, you know, and no one remembers when it was launched because we were still in the aftermath of 9-11. And so no one was really of paying course. attention to 
a new device from Apple. They they barely sold any the first year. I think four hundred thousand globally. It was a it was an absolute failure, a flop. Only people who own Macs could use them. And but you know over time, of course, Apple made some decisions that gradually grew the audience, and eventually they sold over four hundred and fifty million because they opened it up to people who ran Windows. And which of course that you know suddenly it wasn't just a niche product anymore. Now anyone could use it. Uh, they introduced the iTunes. Store so you could download music legally instead of having to get it from Napster or some other peer-to-peer service uh, where you pick up a virus. And so they made it dead simple, easy for you to you know buy music legitimately and get it get it on your device and then manage it. Um, you know the concept of an app store didn't exist before the iPod came along. You think of all the things that we take for granted now on our smartphones and. Really, it was the iPod where Apple tried these things out, refined them to a to a fine edge, and and created a huge multi billion dollar business around it. You know, the 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 device itself may be you know sort of riding off into the sunset, but the services, the the best practices, the entire industry, uh, you know, it lives on in every smartphone that we use today, even if it doesn't carry an Apple an Apple logo. Um, really, it's the iPod that started that process, and uh, and we still carry it in our pockets, and we still carry it in many ways in our hearts. I suppose best to look at it not as an extinction, but more as an evolution uh, in that sense. Yeah, exactly. And you know, and, and I, I admit to doing the same thing. I'd walk into an Apple store, and I kind of wander over, you know, to the the lone, you know, you know, iPod touch sitting in a dusty corner where no one would pay attention to it. And you know, like I always felt like I I needed to, you know, sort of pay it some due, give it a little bit of credit, um, because without that iPod, we wouldn't have had an iPhone. Um, you know, it was the iPod that convinced Apple uh, to uh, initially they were going to release the iPad first. Uh, but then everyone started coming up with their own competitors to the iPod. There were, uh, there were app stores coming up. Everyone was introducing new services. And Apple said, hmm, world's going in a smartphone direction. iPod is pushing us in that direction, giving us the money to fund it. So we're going to go with the iPhone first. And that was a pretty pivotal pivotal decision. Um, and, you know, we wouldn't have had the iPhone the way it is today uh, if not for that influence of the iPhone in those critical years before 2007 so you know i I look at my iphone and i look at all those dusty old ipods next to it and the the older devices of course look laughable but at the time they really were crucial in sort of helping figure out what that roadmap right through to today would look like yeah i guess i guess someone my age always looks at the device and doesn't realize that really the innovation is all the things that make the device work. It's where it's how you downloaded music onto the device. It's where the music was coming from, as you mentioned, uh, with the, the iTunes store and with app stores and so forth that, uh, that the, the iPod really did open up that whole new world. And in some ways too, even for someone like myself, it allowed me to figure out how to use it. So by the time I got a phone, I already understood how it all works. So it made the phone mm-hmm. much less complicated ultimately, which is, which is ingenious in many ways. I mean, you've explained it already, but it is, it's certainly uh, guiding the customer along as you'd like to guide them along. I think that's exactly it. I think you touch on it really nicely. I think that's one of the reasons why Apple is, you know, earlier this year in January, it became the first company in history to ever be valued at $3 trillion. It's down a little bit now. It's at about $2.4 trillion because the stock value is down, but it's still the most valuable company, not tech company, but company on planet Earth. Um, and it's largely because of that philosophy that Apple is not a technology company. Remember, they, because of the iPod, they changed their name from Apple Computer 
to Apple Limited and the reason, or Apple Inc. And the reason being is the iPod turned them into a consumer products company. And if you look at every Apple product that you can buy today, when you open up the box or you, you pick the box up, it's not like any other tech product out there. It's not, there aren't all these features that are listed in tiny print on the outside. They don't sell it to you based on how many megahertz or gigahertz it is or you know, how big the drive is. They don't lead with the, what we call feeds and speeds or you know, the techs and specs. Uh, because, quite frankly, most regular people, non-nerds, just don't care. They just want to pull a device out of a box, plug it in, make it work, and do what they want. And I think that's the technology revolution uh, that we've seen over the past 20 years, that kind of lifespan of the iPod, is that um, the company has been training us to a certain extent to see technology not as something that you, know, you need training for, but as something that should just fit into our everyday life. And, and I think they've done a really good job of that. It's something that I can, I can put in my mom's hand. And she's not a, you know, not a terribly techie person, but she can more or less figure it out. And until the iPod came along, until other devices came along that kind of were built on top of that platform, that sort of legacy, um, that wasn't the case in the tech industry. You know, if I had handed a, a pre-iPod media player from, you know, uh, iRiver or Creative Labs to someone beforehand, uh, they wouldn't have known what to do with it. I knew what to do with it because that's what I do for a living. But most normal right. people couldn't, and that's why they didn't take off. I guess it was it, at the time. I remember. I mean, coming out of out of the eighties and the nineties, Sony really had the portable music player uh, market not cornered, but they were sort of the gold standard. Everyone made Walkmans and Discmans and so on. Uh, how did Apple manage to get out ahead of everybody else when it came to the MP3 player? Because I think Apple understood ecosystem better than anyone else. And, and, and you know, you mentioned it before. It's the software. It's the services. It's the intangibles that, you know, sort of takes a physical device and gives it life and differentiates it from other physical devices. And let's face it, you take uh, an iPod and you put it next to a bunch of other media players and, you know, they all kind of look the same. They all have the same controls for the most part, but it's the, it's the, you know, the, the, the software, the secret sauce, the services inside that are built into it that make it come alive, that really separate it out. And I think Apple has done a better job of that all along. It's one of the reasons why Sony lost that lead. You know, they, they created the mobile music market with the original Walkman and then continued it with the Discman and other variations. But Sony always saw these products as physical devices didn't really understand sort of the, 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 the softer side of it, the intangible, the services behind it that ultimately compelled you and I to buy one. And to the point that today, if you look at sort of what most people will own, they will choose their next, say, smartphone based on the smartphone that they currently have because they have a whole bunch of services that nobody wants to give up if they change platforms. And so, you know, we live in a platform era now, and that's largely because of devices like the iPhone that gradually started to pivot us away from looking at consumer electronics as physical devices to really, it's a bunch of services, and the device is just the thing that delivers those services to us, but ultimately, the physical is less important than the sort of the softer, intangible things that the company wants to sell us. 
I'm speaking with technology analyst and journalist Carmi Levy. We're talking about the uh, end of the iPod. Apple announced this week that is, in fact, you may you may have thought it was already gone because it was certainly hard to find one. It's certainly hard to find one that you would have used because the touch itself is very similar in size to an iPhone itself. So it seemed like kind of a, a useless product to some extent. But it was the last of the iPods, and it will go now as soon as they finish selling out of them um, sometime in the not too too distant future. One would imagine. After this, we'll talk a bit more just about uh, about. The, the impact of the iPod overall, and maybe a bit about uh, some news at Twitter today. That's after this. We're speaking with technology analyst and journalist Carmi Levy this half hour about the end of the iPod. Apple announcing this week that they're pulling the plug on the uh, on the long-standing device. I guess twenty-one years, not bad in the tech business. Um, introduced in two thousand one, and uh, many many iterations of the iPod. The last one, the Touch, uh, that'll be it. They're not making any more. It'll be gone when they are all gone. Um, one thing I was thinking about, Carmi, though, is that the, the the smaller iPods, like the Nanos, were great to exercise with. I don't like exercising with my phone. It's too big. It's too heavy. And the watch, the I, the Apple Watch, isn't exactly a great music device, at least not to download music onto. Um, so they haven't really. They've, I feel like they've kind of left a left a, a gap there in terms of you know portable music devices. Are they just outdated now? Do you think uh, they, they they certainly are? I mean, you know, everything now revolves around your smartphone. That's kind of the center of our digital universe. And if you think of all the additional devices that we now have, so we have wearables like the Apple Watch. We have uh, AirPods that we stick in our ears. Uh, we have HomePod speakers, but they all like basically they get controlled by by apps that are on our phone, and that phone has to come with us and communicate wirelessly with all these devices to deliver those services to allow us to listen to music and all that good stuff. Uh, which, uh, you know, as uh, you know, uh, whenever I work out, I, I lament the same thing because I, I used to have a shuffle and the shuffle was the right. perfect device for me because it didn't weigh anything and you could pretty much stuff it anywhere, the smallest pocket and off you went and it had great battery life and all that. I don't have that anymore. Now I have to schlep my iPod, my iPhone with me wherever I go. And yes, I love my AirPods, but it's still not the same thing. and It's not the same experience. So uh, on the one hand, we've advanced because now we have more sophisticated devices. On the other hand, they have kind of left that behind. And there is an opportunity there at some point for maybe AirPods or, or maybe the Apple Watch to get more storage on it. Or maybe that, you know, you, 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 um, you, sort of, you get the, the, the 4G or the 5G version of the watch and you can leave your phone at home. So technically you can replace them. But it's going to cost you a lot more money. You're probably going to have to get a subscription to something. Um, and battery life is going to be much more of an issue with that than it would have ever been on an iPod. So we've advanced, but we've also lost something. But as we've seen in the history of technology, that's always the case. You know, we always lament the things that we can no longer have. We tend to look back at older devices with a great nostalgia. And I think now the yeah. final retirement of the iPod is giving us that opportunity. and We're kind of realizing what we've lost along the way. I mean, I have nostalgia for my Walkman, but I wouldn't want to use one again. You know, I wouldn't want to be lugging tapes around. I, I loved my Walkman. I, I never was without it for years, uh, but I would never want to. And the Discman too. I'd never want to have to lug, you know, bags of CDs around on trips and so on. So, uh, which was always, always I make, okay. make the mixtape before you go. I mean, that was, it's so yeah. easy now. Drag and drop and you can make a playlist and you're done. And uh, it's, it's, it's so efficient. It's amazing. We live in a golden age. It is no amazing. Question. 
We do. We do. And even the fact is, you know, there was a time where if you heard a song, a snippet of a song somewhere at a party, it would take you months to find it. And now, you know, if you suddenly develop an interest in, you know, uh, Japanese funk of the late 60s, you can download, you can sort of access on Spotify, for instance, every record of that genre ever made in about five minutes, right? It's, I find it, I find it remarkable. What was your favorite iPod uh, overall? What one did you like? It was, it was the, uh, and and, and I, I think I, I made sort of betrayed my choice a couple minutes ago. It was the first generation right. shuffle, the one that looked like a That was the tiny gun. one, right? Yeah, right. Like, and it was just, it, yeah. it was, but it wasn't the smallest. It eventually got smaller. Eventually it was just like a tiny right. little square that clipped on. Um, oh yeah, I remember the, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I, had, I had that one as well and I didn't enjoy it as much, um, but I, I just for, for whatever reason, and I still have that old shuffle. Uh, I can't do anything with it anymore, but um, that yeah. was clearly that and and it was also I remember at the time I got it as a Christmas gift at work and 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 it was the by far the cheapest one that Apple sold and for a lot of people that was the first Apple product that they had because it was so inexpensive and I thought that was kind of a, just a neat thing to have and I so you know I I hold on to it just because you know who wants to give this stuff up and I kind of wonder if I'm going to feel the same way about you know the succession of iPhones that I've had in successive years uh you know will i feel as nostalgic toward them as i feel toward this pile of ipods that i currently have that i will never let go probably not probably not because there was something about the ipod you did actually have to physically kind of decide what music to put on it especially that yeah. I, had, I had exactly the same shuffle i remember it being because you couldn't change it was difficult to change songs it was kind of strange to charge uh but it, it was it was and, and then you forgot about it like you'd have it on you and then you couldn't find it because it was so tiny but it was a great device it was a really uh yeah it was it was uh i i used that a lot to to exercise that was a really good one it certainly was. And, you know, um, my, my kids came of age uh, as these devices were evolving as well. And so in many cases, that was their first media player, their first exposure to, you know, the iPod Touch was their first exposure to a smartphone-like device. Those are important learning devices for them as well. Um, so I guess, I guess you know, this this would be the, the end. Of, I mean, I, I, I don't imagine Apple will ever look at bringing it back. I can't imagine. I think this must be the end, right? They don't tend to go backwards, Apple. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the, the era of standalone media player devices is over. If you look at your smartphone, it now combines all of those functions into one physical device. And that's kind of where the industry is headed. Uh, you know, some I've seen these, you know, uh, ads that will sort of show you, you know, all these things that you used to be able to buy at a Radio Shack. Now, you know, that, that's your iPhone. It's all built into one. And that's kind of where the industry has gone. And Apple really is largely responsible for that. You're right. They're not going back. Yeah, next time we'll have to talk about uh, about those big radios we had back in the early eighties. The, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> those are always fun too. Uh, Carmi, <laughs> yeah, those were great. Yeah, loud. Uh, actually, I still see people carrying around sort of those, um, you know, sort of speakers and, and with the spirit of those old days. Uh, but thanks so much as always for weighing in on uh, the iPod, and I will go home and try and find that shuffle because I know I still have it, but I wouldn't for the life of me know how to charge it or how to listen to it. We'll figure it out, I promise. All right, I'll give you a call. Uh, Carmi <laughs> Levy, thank you so much uh, for your time tonight. Appreciate it, Ben. Thanks. What kind of music you were playing, how you were listening to music, what you think a golden era of Canadian music was, that may depend on when you grew up. 
you know, was it the 70s with Neil Young, the Guess Who, BTO, Joni Mitchell, the stuff my parents used to play all the time. Maybe the 80s, the stuff I used to annoy my parents with, like Loverboy and Red Rider, Glass Tiger, Brian Adams, Corey Hart, Men at Hats especially, Men Without Hats, rather. Uh, then you've got The Hip, Blue Rodeo, The Cowboy Junkies, Pursuit of Happiness, it goes on. But my next guest sent something very special was going on in this country right around the turn of the millennium. Uh, with bands like Tegan and Sarah, Broken Social Scene, Buck 65, Godspeed You Black Emperor, and so forth. And it forms the basis of a new book called Hearts on Fire, Six Years That Changed Canadian Music, 2000 to 2005. And joining me now is the author of said book, Michael Barkley. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me on to talk about this. It's really interesting because I remember all those bands. Uh, I don't remember, you know, the era as well as I should. I think I was working a lot. Uh, but what was the inspiration? You, you mentioned it uh, in sort of in, in interviews you've done. You realized that something really special was going on. When did the light bulb go off? Um, I had just finished writing a book about the 80s and 90s called Have Not Been the Same. And that was, it was about all those bands you mentioned. Um, uh, Blue Rodeo, Tragically Hip, uh, Sloan, um, Spirit of the West, uh, et cetera. And then um, right when that book came out, uh, there's a band from Vancouver called the New Pornographers who um, kind of came out of nowhere with zero expectations, and suddenly the New York Times said they put out one of the best records of the year. And then at the same time, the most uncommercial band possible, Godspeed You Black Emperor, which was like a nine-piece instrumental uh, anti-capitalist collective who made 20-minute uh, songs, um, were one of the most buzzed about uh, bands all across Europe that year as well. And then um, one of the hottest bands in Toronto, the Constantines, uh, I realized were living literally 100 meters away from my house. But I hadn't left the house because I was writing this other book. I'm like, wait a minute, you mean one of the greatest bands in Canada is like, I can stumble out of my door and go into their basement and see them melt my face off? And um, Peaches, like, uh, there were just so many things happening around that time. Sarah Harmer put out an amazing record that year. The Weaker Thans put out a phenomenal uh, record that year, one of the best rock and roll records I've ever heard in my life. So I, I just felt like there was already this groundswell happening at that point. And then within a couple of years, you know, we had Broken Social Scene and Feist and then Arcade Fire, etc. So, um, yeah, so many things were happening in that time. I do think that it is, it, it was as creative and fertile as, say, you know, Laurel Canyon in California in the 70s or, or London punk rock of the 70s. Wow. Um, you know, like, t take your time and place. And I feel like the world was really looking to Canada in the early 2000s for a lot of interesting new music and, and all these people doing very interesting things in their genres that really made the world pay attention. And I guess like so many of those events, it, it is much easier to recognize in retrospect because in the early 2000s, of course, I think of all the things that were popular back then. And a lot of the bands you've spoken about were critically acclaimed, but you didn't hear them a lot. And there was, and it felt like a lot of it was based around live shows, word of mouth. Uh, you know, this wasn't top 40 stuff that you were, I mean, some of it was, but not a lot of it was. No, it wasn't. I mean, and there was other top 40 stuff that was doing really well stuff. I mean, you know, Nickelback is the obvious one and, and some 41 Avril Lavigne, you know, um, Nelly Furtado. That's, and that's, that's all fine. That's not really the music I'm interested in. Um, all those people worked their ass off and did really well through radio primarily. Those people had huge mm -hmm. radio hits. And, but the time period I'm talking about is kind of when the weirdos won and no, you didn't hear this on radio. And this was music that was being disseminated online for the first time. So this is like the early, you're just talking about the iPod. This is pre iPod and, and, right. and leading up, leading up to the launch of the iPod. And, and, 
so this it's kind of the beginning of the decline of physical media. Um, artists don't need those traditional gatekeepers, uh, whether it's media, radio, uh, distribution. Um, you know, nobody's buying records on import anymore, if you're old enough to remember what that meant. Oh, um, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. yeah so, I remember that meant half my allowance. I remember that. Yeah. That's right. So all these Canadian records are going all around the world and finding their niche audience. So it doesn't matter if you're someone like, like Caribou who makes like psychedelic electronic jazz. Obviously, that's never going to be played on the radio next to Nickelback in Canada. However, it'll, it, it'll find its niche audience around the world and he can play to thousands of people across the world. And, and so that's the transformative moment that I think happened uh, in the 2000s. And the other weird thing is there's really no, no metric to measure it because we're no longer counting sales, right? And, and so you are, uh, I guess you're, you're counting uh, concert tickets, like the size of venues you're filling. But, you know, nowadays it's very transparent with streaming. I mean, anybody can see, like, how popular uh, Song X by Artist Y is. Um, and back in the old days, you would have, you know, sound scan, um, uh, uh, you know, scanning the barcode at retail, you tell right. how, you can tell how much good things. But this this period of time, you know, I say, you know, Arcade Fire's funeral um, sold 500,000 copies within the first couple of years of its release. But I will bet you that 10 times more than that, um, people had that album on their computer. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. It was a very, I mean, the whole music was transforming, at least the way we consumed it was transforming over that period. One of the things I found interesting too, is you mentioned that that these were all, these were bands from right across the country. There was, so you, you couldn't call it a Canadian sound per se. It was no, happening... No in different ways in different parts of the country with different bands. Some of them had never heard of each other. I remember my dad calling me to pay, to play me the uh, elegy from Gump Worsley, uh, the weaker than song. Cause he thought right. so, I mean, there was so much great stuff going on, but, it, but again, it didn't feel, it was like that. What happens now is sort of disparate. And, and it, you know, how, how did you account for that? And, and how did, how did you manage to tie it all together as being something unique? What makes it Canadian, I guess. Um, nothing makes it uniquely Canadian, but I do think that um, a lot of these artists, uh, and again, a lot of them do not sound like each other at all. Uh, you know, another one of my favorite bands in this time is the Bigatanias from Vancouver, and, and you know that's very different than Alexis on Fire. You know, um, yeah. but we're t we're still talking about the same period of time, and 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 a lot of similarities in the way these people became successful. But I think I think the thread is that a lot of these artists, again, were unique in their genre. Right. So, you know, broken social scene, people weren't used to a band like that, like a band that size and, and who's singing and they all have these other successful bands on the side. And, and, uh, and now everyone's picking up horns all of a sudden, like what is going on uh, or the hidden cameras, uh, kind of a, a similar thing um, with, with more of a queer bent to it. Um, and, and then, uh, or someone like Corb Lund from Alberta, like nobody was writing songs like that in country music, like with that level of, of, regional detail about Albertan ranching culture, but like with this really witty and interesting uh, lyrical eye, um, uh, you know, the Bigatanias were not like um, quick finger picking bluegrass musicians. They played like really strange haunting music um, that had a lot more in common with the Cowboy Junkies than anybody who was coming out of that Oh Brother Where Art Thou movement. You know, Kid Koala was a turntablist who didn't make hip hop. He made what sounded like Muppet vaudeville music. Like, yeah. You know, yeah. all these people were doing something unique that that really that made everybody else in their genre around the world go, "Whoa, what is that exactly?" And then and then Canada got a new rep because before Canada, you know, we all we as Canadians we've traveled abroad and they're like, "Oh, Canada, ha ha ha!" You know, Celine Dion, Brian Adams, Nickelback, whatever. And um, and this was like, "Oh no no, 
now the world realized just how interesting and broad and, and diverse Canadian music is and how wonderfully weird a lot of it is, too. And, and that, that became Canada's new musical reputation. I was living in, uh, in the UK when Brian Adams is everything I do spent 100,000 weeks at number one. And by the end I was being yelled at for having yeah. imported Brian Adams to the UK, uh, or at least the yeah. song. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. I, I was really curious to know what the, where do you think this fits in? Cause you just written a book about all those great bands between 85 and 95. And I was just wondering what the evolution was, what happened in those years that led up to this, you know, this huge growth of creativity in Canadian music again. And then what has it given us today that we would still recognize out there? Clearly it laid the, way, uh, the groundwork for bands like Arcade Fire, but uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. I'm speaking with Michael Barkley. He's the author of Have Not Been the Same, the Can Rock Renaissance 1985 to 95, and the newly released Hearts on Fire. That's the one we're talking about. Six years that changed Canadian music, 2000 to 2005. You know, just listening back to get ready for tonight, listening back to all those songs, I was reminded of it just how eclectic it all was and how interesting it all was. Um, what was the what was the lineage there? Did you think? I mean, you wrote about that great era between eighty five and ninety five, and then all of a sudden we have all these different sounds emerging in the early two thousands. Um, what, what what was the string that drew that? What was the history there? Um, why did it start sounding a lot different? I mean, I think it's generational. I mean, certainly, um, I remember writing "Have Not Been the Same" with uh, my two colleagues, and and uh, you know, a lot of the origin stories of these bands were quite similar. It's like Oh, we we listen to the Beatles. We listen to the Velvet Underground. We listen to the Clash. Like, and that's what everybody listened to before they started their band. This time, with Hearts on Fire, um, the generation of the early two thousands, they were listening to all kinds of things, all kinds of like obscure garage rock or psychedelic records or weird German electronic music or uh, underground hip hop from the from the states. Um, again, like they're their influences were not just, we like the Beatles because everybody likes the Beatles. That's like breathing the air. But like, um, so these influences were really, uh, much, much more varied and unusual. And, and that, um, and then they took all those influences and, and absorbed them and then came out with something original. Um, and not to say those earlier bands weren't original, but, um, a lot of those earlier bands, kind of fit into patterns. You know, I mean, the Tragically Hip fit into a certain pattern of rock music. Blue Rodeo fits into a certain pattern of rock music to the happiness. Um, you know, all, all these people, uh, we kind of understand the parameters of, of what they're doing. Um, whereas with this time out, it was, it, was, it was a bit more left field. Where do we still hear it? What did it lay the groundwork for that we're still seeing today, do you think? Um, I mean... Musically, I think there's again it's it's so diverse it's hard to talk about in a short amount of time. But um, I do think there's there's a long musical influence, and and a lot of these bands are, are still doing quite well uh, today. I mean, I, I've I've seen a lot of them in the last. I haven't even been to many shows in the last uh, year. <laughs> Very few actually. But um, I mean, the new pornographers were amazing when I saw them. Broken Social Scene were amazing when I saw them a couple weeks ago. Um, uh, Godspeed were incredible uh, uh, last week. I'm going to see Sarah Harmer t- or next week. Um, right. They're all on the road and they're all doing great. Um, but I think what the it, your question about the influence is really more about the business and the business models. Because remember, these these people were 
were building their career at a time when the sands were shifting underneath them. Like everything everybody thought they knew about the music industry in 2000 was like obliterated by 2005. Um, yeah, everything and, changed, and, yeah. And 2005, I think, is the dawn of YouTube, right? 2004 is the dawn of, of the iTunes store. So mm-hmm. um, everything was changing. And then um, I think the, the fearlessness is, is really um, the lasting influence. Because all the artists I'm talking about um, because they had, didn't have expectations of getting played on, on corporate radio and having radio hits, they're just like, I'm just going to do my weird thing. And then, oh my God, look what happened. The rest of the world noticed. And, and, um, and, and that kind of DIY spirit and independent spirit um, that, that led to, uh, that goes hand in hand with the creative fearlessness. I think that is the lasting influence. And you see that throughout genres too. You see that with someone like Mustafa. You see that with someone like the Weather Station. You see that um, with someone like Daniel Caesar, um, uh, July Talk, like all, all these all these newer artists that again don't sound anything like each other. But um, I think I think they took all the lessons learned from this generation of musicians who were really sort of figuring out as they went uh, because things had changed so quickly. You mentioned something interesting too that uh, a lot of these bands were actually far more popular in stranger places. Like some of these bands were very popular in the UK, but not very popular here or popular in different parts of the world. Uh, even even sort of the success was a bit a bit random and eclectic. Yeah, I mean, there's very. I mean, part of my thesis was to talk about the people that the rest of the world noticed. So there's very few artists. Um, Sarah Harmer, Sam Roberts, and Joel Plaskett, who I do talk about because I think they're all incredible artists, but they kind of had minimal impact, impact um, outside the country. And then there's people like uh, like Peaches, who is not a household name at all in Canada, um, but incredibly influential, very sexually charged, underground electronic uh, pop music. Um, she is directly responsible for Leslie Feist's career, um, which right. a lot of people uh, don't realize. But I was in Berlin recently on, on Unrelated Matters, and... Um, talking to people about the book and, and, uh, and the guy who works at the major magazine in Germany, he's like, I was like, so who do you recognize? Look at, look at this list here. He's like, Oh, peaches, peaches is like our mascot in Berlin. Cause she moved there in 2000. Yeah. And, 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 um, yeah. and, um, yeah, she's, she's huge there. Like she put on like a jukebox musical about her life in Berlin. And there's an audience for it. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and then I also think even popular Canadian bands like Billy talent, I think, Canadians don't realize just how popular they are in Germany. They play those huge festivals opening up for Metallica in front of like 100,000 people, you know? Um, and and uh, a band like Alexis on Fire will go and, and play in like Brazil and, and, and fill venues, you know? Like, um, yeah, I think, I think a lot of Canadians don't realize how popular these people are outside of Canada. I only have a minute left, but but it is fascinating that you've assembled this this sort of this look at this era along with 42 bands, uh, charting it out, uh, a last word to you just about what you'd like listeners to know about, uh, about the book and, and why they should read it. <laughs> uh, cause <laughs> no it's a great book and, and I hope, I hope people learn something like it's, it's unlikely that a lot of readers will know every single artist in the book, but I do think that all the stories are fascinating. I think all the stories are different from each other. And I hope that people really, um, discover a lot of great music and learn lessons about how the music business works. And I would say that I also uh, assembled a bunch of playlists at michaelbarkley.ca slash playlist for Tidal, Apple, and Spotify. So if you want to yeah. dive in deep, there's a chapter-by-chapter uh, playlist breakdown there. And the book is widely available uh, through your favorite local independent bookstore or anywhere else you choose to shop uh, from ECW Press.
It's always nice to uh, to shine a bright light on Canadian talent. Michael Barkley, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me here tonight. Well, Shanghai is usually a bustling, busy place. It is the world's third largest city. It's the biggest city in China. But they have been very um, locked down over the past little while. They continue to find COVID-19 cases in the community, which is dampening prospects for easing of a lockdown, which has stopped just about everything in the city for ages now and can find millions to their homes for nearly two months now. Uh, for the most part, China, of course, has a zero COVID policy, uh, which means eradicating uh, the virus involves uh, very punitive measures to try to make sure that it doesn't spread, including uh, areas where people are brought to if they do test positive. And they keep trying to bring it down to no reported cases for three straight days, three consecutive days of zero community transmission so they can ease restrictions. Well, they got to, um, there were none on Tuesday, or there was one reported Tuesday, but two on Wednesday, I gather. So the timeline needs to be reset. All that to say that it has been a very tough time to live in Shanghai. Cameron Wilson has been there for more than 15 years working in communications. He spent the last 56 days under lockdown for most of it, uh, forbidden from leaving his apartment um, except to pick up food deliveries. Cameron Wilson joins us now from Shanghai. Uh, Cameron, I know when you this first started, people were being told it was going to be a few days, maybe a week, and here we are. Yeah, we were told it was going to be 48 hours, but um, we passed the 48-day mark uh, over a week ago, so it's it's really starting to drag on. What's it been like just day-to-day life? I know you have a, a wife and a, and a, and a young ch- and, a, and, a, and a daughter. What's it been like just to try to survive day in, day out with these restrictions in place? I mean, I think it's, and you go through different phases. In the beginning, uh, because we went through lockdown, two years ago, uh, when the pandemic first started, the lockdown two years ago was actually quite normal. Well, it was actually quite, uh, how to say, loose. Uh, you could go outside, you could go to the shops, you could buy food, um, and it, was, it wasn't it was a very strict lockdown. So we assumed there was going to be something similar, but unfortunately it's turned out to be a lot different. Um, so we've been stuck inside for, for over 50 days with only really minimal trips outside. Um, that's really difficult to keep up your spirits but um yeah it's just really really boring that's that's the best way to describe it yeah i mean mean, it does sound a bit like being incarcerated in some ways where you can you know when you're confined what is it like i mean what how does it work you're i i i've just heard anecdotally that you know if you're living in a in a compound which many people do in china and, and where i did um that if you have a lot of people in one place if someone tests positive, it sort of starts over again. It, how how does it work in terms of keeping you at home? How often do you get tested? What's uh, what's that like? It's a pretty tedious process, to be frank. Um, we've been tested uh, three times in the last four days. Um, basically, you sit in your apartment most of the time, and then there'll be someone outside with like a bullhorn who can call your name, call call your apartment number rather. And everyone goes goes downstairs, gets tested. Um, and overall, Shanghai is kind of divided up into different areas. It's kind of gridded off. So if there's no infections in your grid, in theory, then your compound or your your residence will be, or the, the, your um, 
your residential compound would be unlocked and you can go out. Uh, but a lot of compounds have reached that they've reached that condition, but for some reason they're still not being released. So the problem becomes you start to kind of it feels like it's a, a sense like it's endless and it's never going to stop. So that's makes it difficult to keep your morale up. How do you get food? Like, how do you eat? How, how does that work? Um, it's been difficult food. Um, now, it's the food situation is good because there's plenty of delivery drivers available now. But a few weeks ago, it wasn't like that. A few weeks ago, we were literally worrying about where our next meal was going to come from. Uh, when my wife was really stressed out, uh, she was you know, on her mobile phone, using all the apps, trying to order deliveries. Uh, every other hour, she's always checking, but it was just so difficult to get any food to arrive because there was there was hardly any delivery drivers. Um, so the government actually gave uh, handouts of food, and they continued to do that every week or so. But to be honest, the quality of this food is is uh, leaves something to be desired. What about things like schooling? Um entertainment, I guess, and, and even well, you can't leave, right? Other than to pick up food. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got a daughter, she's six, and um, it's really difficult for kids. They've obviously, they're, they're young, they're full of energy, and they need to run about. Um, all, the, all the students in Shanghai are doing online classes, which is obviously not ideal, but it's better than nothing. But for parents, people like myself, it's, it's it's difficult because, especially like a young kid, you've got to keep an eye on them, you know, to make sure they're still paying attention to their class and they're not like messing around. And at the same time, we've we've all got our own day jobs to take care of. So, to be honest, it's I mean, it's really it's a really tough um, situation, and the longer it goes on, the harder it gets. <laughs> I, I I was going to ask you what the mood is like, but I guess you don't see your neighbours either. We do see our neighbours um, in the passing. Um, I mean, Chinese people are pretty social. They typically complain less than Westerners, and they would take a lot more. How to say? They're a bit more tolerant of of nonsense compared to a Western yeah. mindset. But even Chinese, I think, are beginning to reach a limit. Um, there's been some angry scenes in the compound. There's been um, residents been shouting at the health fuckers. There's been some. You know, some pretty forthright language exchanged. Some people are complaining about all the constant tests and saying they don't, don't want to do it anymore and so on and so forth. But generally, things things are still continuing in a functional way, but it's it's getting harder and harder. Um, do you have any hope that this is going to end soon? I mean, I was speaking to someone, uh, a Ukrainian woman, who actually tested positive. So she ended up in one of those... Uh, isolation areas, sort of those those big hospitals yeah. they have at the convention center. Um, do you have any hope that this, and this was ages ago, this was like 30 days ago, do you have any hope that this is going to end soon? Is there any light on the horizon at all? They say that, the, as they describe it, the zero transitions in society statistic is apparently is close to zero. But unfortunately, in this whole lockdown, we've reached numerous points where we've been led to believe that it was going to end soon, but then something happened and it didn't. So that just adds to the 
the sense of hopelessness that we have. And, and to be really honest with you, I kind of stopped looking at official announcements because they just don't really mean anything anymore. It's, it's, you know, it's like I, I'll get out, I'll believe I'm out when I'm out and I'm walking around outside. That's the way I'm looking at it. Uh, and it's not, I mean, it's it's not easy to, it's not easy to face the fact that you don't have like a particularly solid day or an ideal of when you might be released, but I think that's just the reality of it. So I just choose to just just uh, face up to it. I mean, I've spent time in Shanghai. It's a it's a fantastic place, and and I, I gather you you love the place, or you wouldn't have settled down there. Um, yeah. Are you are you are, has it changed your attitude at all about about? I mean, the zero COVID policy has proven now to be a to be a really tough slog uh, because of Omicron. And it feels like, I mean, the WHO was out this week criticizing it because of Omicron and the and the and just the sheer weight of these lockdowns on people like yourselves, many, the millions of families in Shanghai. Uh, has it changed your attitude at all about living there? It has changed my attitude. Um, I mean, I, I think you need to look at the big picture to, to really see what is, how it is for people who, who are stuck here. Um, in this lockdown situation, I mean, two years ago, I, I was completely supportive of, of the things they did. Um, it was a, it was a virus which no one really understood anything about. There was lots of people who had fallen really sick, even quite a few people dying. Um, no one was vaccinated. It was a really emergency situation, and I was fully supportive of all the, of the lockdowns in China, of all the vaccination program. I was fully on board. But if fast forward to two years later. And here we are, still doing this. It's just so difficult to get your head around it. I mean, it's it's really, it's really baffling. Why, after all this time, we still need to do this? Why have they not found a solution? It doesn't make any sense. Um, so, from that point of view, it's caused me to kind of lose a lot of confidence in, you know, in the way the place is managed. Um, and some of the things I've seen on social media and also heard of things that have happened to people I know. For example, people have been taken away to really, really terrible conditions in isolation centres. People separate from their kids. People's, the latest thing now is if there's someone in your building tests positive, then the whole building is taken away to an isolation centre. And then they come into your apartment and they spray bleach over everything uh, with no regard for your valuables or your personal items. All kinds of stuff like this. It feels like it just feels too much, and um, I don't want to really accept this in the long term. Have you felt at least protected from the virus? No, no, I'm not worried yeah. about the virus at all. I'm, I'm more, I'm more worried about being taken away to uh, an isolation center, which would, even if the conditions aren't bad, I just don't want to be. It's basically been equivalent of being taken to jail. I mean, you're taken away from your apartment and you're locked, you're stuck in a place and for like a few weeks until you start testing negative again. The actual, in the actual uh, fear of the virus, I think for the vast majority of people in Shanghai is, is, is minimal. We actually, as I mentioned, we did interview someone and she'd been there for, tw- I think, 23 or 24 days um, and was not, wasn't given any, any clear indications of when or how she'd be able to get out, regardless of how many times she tested positive. Um, uh, just as a as a final, I mean, how do you get through just the evenings and that you just plan things out? Do you sort of have a routine that you've now established and that's what you stick to? Well, I would say my personal circumstances are are fortunate because my wife's 
Chinese and their parents-in-law live in the same building, not the same apartment. Oh, great. Um, you know, I have a really good relationship with them. Uh, they're really good people. I'm really well looked after. But that's that's me. That's that's very lucky for me. Uh, if you're for other other individuals, their you know their personal circumstances might be really different. They might be the relationship might not be very smooth. Uh, they may have other issues at home. I really dread to think what it's like for people like that who are stuck at home for this amount of time. Cameron Wilson, uh, I hope uh, for your on your behalf that uh, this all ends soon. And thank you so much for sharing your story with me tonight. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. Thank you.